All right, guys, jumping into the deep end. Y'all ready? I'm just jumping, run right past the short, the, the shallow end, jump in the deep end. Into the book of Kings. If you're new, we've been walking through the book of Kings for months. We were out of the book of Kings for about a month. We did an Advent series. Here we are. That's what I mean by deep end. We're jumping right back into the book of Kings. Uh, the book of Kings is mainly doing three things. The author wants to try to communicate three big ideas, and I even alliterated them for you so that you'll remember them. Uh, the three P's, right? So remember the book of Kings, the author is trying to communicate the power of God, that the earthly kings, they seem to have all the power, but they actually don't. We've been seeing that in the ministry of the prophets, that their word is far more powerful than the kings of the earth. So the kings is trying to help you see the power of God, namely that he is king. Second, the book of Kings is trying to trace the, the promise, P, the second P, promise to David. Promised that God gave to David that there would be a king in the line of David that would be the ruler, that would be the king of Israel, king of the world, forever. A forever king is going to come in the line of David. And we're looking for that king. We're looking for the answer in the line of David. We thought it was going to be Solomon, and it wasn't. We thought it might be Rehoboam, and it wasn't. And basically what the author is doing is he's showing you all these kings come up and all of them fail. Even the good ones like Asa don't tear down the high places and die. So we're waiting for this answer to the promise of God. We keep looking for the king that is in the line of David that will be the true king forever. And, of course, you're going to have to wait to the book of Matthew to see that. And it is Christ. That's the one. The author knows that. And that's wise writing. Power. Promise. If you forget, by the way, the three Ps, remember that one. The promise. The book of Kings is tracing the promise of God to David. Third P, and that is primacy. The author is trying to communicate the primacy of worship. God will not share his glory with another. He will not share his glory with another. He won't share it with Baal. He won't share it with some other worship to some other God that we kind of piece together and kind of throw him in. You'll see that today. And so uh, power, promise, primacy. And again, all of these things, the the author is consciously trying to get us ready for Christ who is the king. And that tells us, guys, that the book, the, the books of the Old Testament is not newspapers, right? It's not just reporting the news, and this happened, and then that happened. That's not what the Old Testament is doing. It's, it is conscious. The authors know exactly what they're doing, and it's exemplified. It's actually expressed what it's doing in Romans 15, 4. In the New Testament, they tell you what the Old Testament is doing. For whatever was written in former days, that's the Old Testament, was written for our instruction, for the new covenant community's instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we, that is the church, might have hope. It is known that the Old Testament is consciously meant to give us instruction in the New Testament, in the new covenant, so that we might have encouragement, endurance, that we might have hope. It's for our instruction, and we're going to get a lot of that And we have been getting a lot of it in the book of Kings. Okay, that leads us closer into Kings here. So and where we left off last time was in chapter 19. Remember, we were anticipating or studying the ministry of Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Elijah came on the scene in chapter 17. Y'all remember that? Remember, he comes on the scene to the wicked king of Israel, Ahab, and he tells uh, Ahab that because of his idolatry, a drought of judgment was going to come, and it did. Y'all remember that? And then he comes back, chapter 18, and 
And Elijah just challenges all the prophets of Baal. They go up on Mount Carmel. And with just a prayer, boom, fire from God comes down while the God of Baal sat there silent. All right? That's what we saw. The gods, other gods are quiet. God talks. That was chapter 18. But then chapter 19, you remember, Jezebel, the wife of the wicked king Ahab, she comes back, threatens uh, Elijah. Elijah pieces out. He has his George Bailey. It's a wonderful life moment. And the Lord reminds him, listen, you think everything's failing. You think you're the only one. When in reality, I work through the whisper. I'm doing all kinds of things you don't even know. And he tells him, I've got 7,000 people that are not going to bow the knee to Baal, but love me and know me. You need to go commission a new king in, in Syria, and you need to go commission Elisha. Elijah, or Elijah goes and commissions Elisha, and that's where we left it off. That brings us to chapter 20. Y'all cut up? Okay. Here we go. Big idea this morning. We're going to look at three chapters. So hope you drink an extra cup of coffee. Uh, Three chapters, chapter 20, 21, and 22. And these three chapters are all about Ahab. That's the whole point. It's all about Ahab. This wicked king of Israel, Ahab. And what we're going to see in in these three chapters is that Ahab sells himself to do evil in God's sight. He sells himself to do evil in that which is God's sight. And so what we're going to see in chapter 20 uh, is we're going to see Ahab's injustice. Chapter 21, you're going to see Ahab's abuse of authority. Then in chapter 22, you're going to see Ahab's selective sinful counselors. That's what you're going to see. There it all is. Now it's going to take me another 40 plus minutes to tell you all of that. All right? So that's what you're going to see in those three chapters. And in Ahab, don't lose sight of this, in Ahab we see the Antichrist. That's what we see. Christ is the true and forever and good king. Ahab's like the opposite. That's what the author's trying to help you see. He's the opposite. He's the antichrist. He's not what we, except in one instance, which you'll see. All right, here we go. Scene one. You ready? Chapter 20. Ahab's injustice. Ahab's injustice. So we pick up with this dude in chapter 20, this dude by the name of Ben-Hadad. He's the king of Syria at the time. Syria has come up a lot, hasn't he, in our study of kings. Uh, Syria is real close to Israel, so we, we learn a lot about them. We read in 1 Kings 20, 1 to 6, that this king, Hadad, Ben Hadad, he's kind of going around doing whatever he wants, taking over people. And he t- says to Ahab, listen, I'm going to come in there and I'm going to take your wife, I'm going to take your kids, and I'm going to take your gold and your silver. Imagine getting that notice when you come into the office. All right, so Ahab, he's wondering what to do. He gathers his elders. He asks for help, right? This clearly, this Ben-Hadad is a wicked dude. He's been campaigning all the region, warring upon peoples. He, he doesn't know what to do. He calls the elders in, and in verse 8, the elders of Israel tell King Ahab, don't listen to him. Don't give him all the stuff that he's asking for. And so in verses 10 to 12 of chapter 20, we get this back and forth of like two kids, two boys on a schoolyard, right? Where one kid says, I'm going to beat you up. He says, no, you're not. Let's go, right? Boom, that, that's verses 10 to 12, all right? And that brings us to the introduction then. There, there's going to be this fight, and right before the fight between Syria and Israel, this unnamed prophet breaks in, and he rolls up to Ahab, and remember, God is showing his rule through the ministry of the prophets, all right? So his rule comes through the word of these prophets. And he says, this prophet, 
says to Ahab in verse 13. Take a look. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? He's talking about the big army of Syria. Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now that last line is critical. The author has put it in there to frame this fight, namely to communicate to Ahab and to us, the readers, that God's the one in control. He's the king. He's got the power. No matter how big Ben-Hadad's army may appear. And he's going to give this fight into the hand of Ahab. And he tells him why. That's significant. He tells him why he's going to let him win. So that he, so that we, the reader, would know that he is God. That he is the Lord and not Ahab. Not his great might or his great might of his army. Then after this, Ahab gets this news. He's going to win the fight. They put their battle plan into, into order. They, they, and then the, the Israel goes out to attack the Syrians. The Syrians see the Israelites approaching them. And they go and they tell Ben-Hadad. And Ben-Hadad's got his belly up to a bar drinking fistfuls of Jack Daniels. Dude's drunk out of his mind, right? And so they, they tell him, listen, hey, the Israelites are coming. And Ben-Hadad blitzed. is like, well, then bring them all in. We'll take them. Take them alive, he even says. In other words, Ben-Hadad thinks this is going to be easy. And of course, that's not, that's not what happens, Right? The Lord says he's going to win the fight. And what happens? Ben-Hadad and his boys, they lose. The Syrians lose the battle. But we learn something. Look at verse 22. The prophet, after this battle is over and and the Israelites have won, just as the Lord said they would, we learn in verse 22, the prophet comes back to Ahab and tells him, you need to get ready, bro, because these dudes coming back in the spring and you're going to get another round of fighting. And then we get some intel on why the Syrians think they can beat them a second time. Or at least go try to beat them for the first time a second time. Look at verse 23. This is what the Syrians think. This is how they interpret their loss. Their gods, they said this is the Syrians talking, referencing the God of the Bible. Their gods are gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain. And surely we shall be stronger than they. So the Syrians think that the strength of the Lord is confined to topography. That he's a God of the hills and he's weak in the plains. And friends, people still think this today of God. People still think that God is either like he only really cares about the really important things in the world. And then there are people that think that God only really cares about the really small things in the world. But he doesn't really do both. People still think this. But of course, this is a false dilemma. If God is God, then he's God of all. His power is not limited to the big or the small. It's all. He is the God of the hills. He is a God of the valleys. He is a God of the mountains. He is the God of the plains. He is the God of Iran. He is the God of China. He is the God of Bolivia. He is the God of individuals and Nathan Knight. He is the God of Billy Joe Giles in Clarksville, Tennessee. He's the God of Ryan and Kathy Phillips in Mumbai, India. He's the God of all. He's not the God of one sort of thing and not another. His power is not limited and his interests are not limited. He is the king of all. That's the God of whom I preached to you this morning. So the Lord, of course, is less than pleased at this sentiment that the Syrians have. You can see that in verse 28. Take a look. Thus says the Lord. 
Because the Syrians have said, the Lord is the God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give this, all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. There's that line again, telling you the reasons why. In verses 29 to 30, you get the second battle with Syria. Second verse, same as the first. Israel beats these dudes. Syria loses, and this is the context. This is what the author is trying to get us to. This is the moment that the author is bringing us to. This wicked Ben-Hadad, who's been acting a fool and like warring on people and just getting blitzed and all these other things, he comes out of the battle alive, and he meets King Ahab. And what happens here is Ben-Hadad strikes a deal with Ahab so that he won't get destroyed. Take a look at verse 34. This is Ben-Hadad talking to Ahab. He says to him, so that he doesn't get axed, he says, the cities that my father took from your father, I will restore. And you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, well, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. Now, some of you hear that and you think, oh, how merciful of Ahab. What a good God. Remember two things, though, friends. Two things. One, Ahab is a crazy, wicked dude. Crazy wicked. Two, remember, Ben-Hadad is a crazy, wicked dude. And so Ahab should have done what governments, not individuals, what governments should have done, and that is to administer God's judgment, right? Government is given the sword, as it were. God, what Ahab should have done is administered God's judgment on Ben-Hadad. And we see that he doesn't do that. He doesn't administer judgment to Ben-Hadad. Why? Because he gets something out of it. Self-interest. Personal interest led Ahab to not administer the justice God intended for Ben-Hadad. At the whole point of this exercise of telling us all these details was to show us that the Lord was God and not Ahab and not Ben-Hadad. And yet Ahab acted in self-interest instead of God's interest of justice on the wicked man. In verses 35 to 42, you then get this fascinating example that sounds, by the way, very similar to the interaction between Nathan when he confronts David over his uh, sin. But what we learn in verses 35 to 42 is this son of a prophet has somebody strike him in the eye, bandage him up. He goes then to the front, the battlefront, where he meets Ahab, this son of the prophet with a bandaged eye. He's got the blood coming out of his eye. When he sees this son of the prophet, when he sees Ahab, this prophet tells Ahab of a scenario. He tells him of a scenario of a Israelite that picks up a Syrian POW. And then loses sight of the Syrian POW because he wasn't paying attention. And then Ahab then says back to this prophet about what they should do about that fact that he lost the prophet. Is that that guy should be judged. Verse 40. So shall your judgment be, Ahab says. You yourself have decided it. In other words, Ahab says the guy who lost the POW should be judged. And at this point, this is so good. this point, the prophet takes off his bandage and says, aha! So it should have been with you, Ahab. Ahab then sees this. He knows this is a prophet. He knows at this moment things ain't good for him. The prophet says, look at verse 42. Thus says the Lord. 
Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. So friends, think about this. Imagine someone catching Adolf Hitler in 1945 or Osama bin Laden or some other terrible dictator. And then when they bring those guys before them, they say, well, listen, if I give you some stuff to kind of make your country easier on it, you'll just let me let me go. We would all, if that were to happen, we would all be very upset, right? We would all be angry that somebody let this evil man go. We would rightly decry such an action as unjust. And so it is, friends. The Lord will judge Ahab for his injustice. He cared about the economic benefit that would come to him and Israel more than he cared about the justice of the Lord on this wicked man for what he had done. And in this, here we go, guys. Don't lose sight of this. And in this, Ahab shows that he's a law unto himself. He leaves after this judgment, it says, vexed and sullen. When you look into the original language, what it means is, is he's angry. So in other words, when this prophet pronounces judgment on him, he doesn't humble himself over the judgment. Instead, he gets ticked off at it. That leads to the incident of chapter 21, scene 2. Ahab's abuse of authority. Chapter 21, verse 1, we learn of this guy by the name of Naboth, the Jezreelite. If you're looking for names for your children, there's a good one, Naboth. He's a good dude. Naboth's a good dude. Naboth, the the Jezreelite, he's got a vineyard right next to Ahab's palace. Take a look at verse 2 of chapter 21. Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden. Because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. If it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. That last line's important. See, Naboth understands something that Ahab didn't. Naboth understood that when God gave Israel the land, when they inherited it, they did just that. They inherited the land. Uh, In other words, Naboth properly understands that the land given to his people is like a child. It's to be stewarded. It's not to be bought and sold and to be profited from. But Naboth wants it because he wants a vegetable garden. So Naboth won't give it to him. He won't sell it to him. And then like like a, just a little, man, Ahab's so annoying to me all week. He's so annoying. It's just like, a, like an annoying little kid. What is it? Look at verse 4. He goes back to his room and he won't eat. He's just a, he's a brat is what he is. He's evil and he's a brat. He goes back to his room and he won't eat because he didn't get his vegetable garden. In walks his uber-wicked Baalite wife, Jezebel, who sees him in his room and, what's wrong, little boy? You know, what's, what's wrong with you, husband of mine? And Ahab tells her, well, Naboth won't sell me his vegetable garden. Look at Jezebel's response in verse 7. Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So Jezebel, she's got little interest in the inheritance of the Lord. She too is a law unto herself. And so she basically says, you're the king of Israel, Ahab. I'll take care of this. 
I'll get it for you. And in verses 8 to 14, Jezebel creates this fast in all of Israel. She doesn't care about the fast, but she creates this fast in Israel, and she gets a cup of, and this is not my word, it's a Bible's word, she gets a couple worthless dudes to come sit next to Naboth and accuse him of not keeping this made-up fast, at which time they then drag him outside and stone him to death. They have him murdered. Because her husband wanted a vegetable garden. How do you feel about this? How do you think the Lord feels about this? The Lord is obviously incensed at this behavior. Once again, more injustice. And so the Lord sends his boy, Elijah, back. Man, I wish there's a few moments in the Bible. This wouldn't be in my top 20, but I'd like to have been at this point. I'd love to see when Elijah. And what we learn there in the, in the text, in verse 20, Elijah shows back up as a messenger from God and he finds Naboth, probably happy-go-lucky, planting carrots and whatever else in his garden. And he looks over there and look who comes strolling up on the garden but Elijah. And we read here of the judgment that's going to come against Ahab. Verse 20, Ahab sees Elijah. He says, Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? Remember all the history between these two, right? He, that's Elijah, answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself, there's the line, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond, or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me. And because you have made Israel to sin. Remember what Jesus said about people that makes even the least of these to sin, what he would do to them? Here it is. And Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Cutting judgment. This would shake the most hardened of souls. And it does. The greatest of screenwriters could not have written what comes next. Look at verse 27. Ahab hears these words. Now keep in mind that all the judgment, all the things that Ahab has already seen, and none of it affected him. But this does. Look at verse 27. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. Now, this is amazing. Because this hasn't been the character of Ahab. Remember, he's been a law to himself. He's been confronted time and again, only to harden his heart. But something, if for a moment, breaks through Ahab's proud heart. He's got the trappings of repentance in this moment. The most wicked of Israel's kings has finally humbled himself before the Lord. But of course, if this was a movie, I don't know about you guys, I'm reading this going, I don't like this. I want him to get it. I know the Lord's merciful. and He's going to be merciful to this dude. I want him to get it. But remember, beloved, how God treated you. You were an enemy. He loved you. Look at verse 29, how the Lord reacts. 
to Ahab's repentance. I love these first three words. It's as though the Lord is like a 12-year-old boy, giddy. Have you seen? Have you seen how Ahab humbled himself before me? He's talking to Elijah. Have you seen? He's so happy, the Lord. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Now, some of you, I know what you're thinking. Well, that's not fair to the son. Just go read the end of chapter 22. His son, Ahiza, is a bigger jerk than Ahab is. He ain't innocent. The Lord's justice is always right. But aren't we amazed at God's grace? This is a wicked man. And God just is so quick to show him mercy. Friends, it is a very popular sentiment. I would add a very uninformed and unstudied opinion that somehow the God of the Old Testament is angrier and meaner than the God of the New Testament. That is a lie. And if you actually take the time to slow down and study the Bible, you'll see that. We see it right here, don't we? And when we do see the anger of God, what do we find time and again? You heard me just read it. Time and again, every time God's anger comes up, we find that the word is coupled with the word provoked. Right? His anger has to be provoked. Provoked. Whereas his mercy is so quick. And we read that in the Old Testament itself. God is so quickly merciful. <clears throat> Dane Ortland says of the Lord in his book, fantastic book, Gentle and Lowly. You can find it in the bookstall downstairs. He says, God is unswervingly just. But what is his disposition? What is he on the edge of his seat eager to do? Ortland says, if you, if you catch me off guard, what will leap out of me before I have time to regain my composure will likely be grouchiness. But if you catch God off guard, what leaps most freely out of him is blessing. The impulse to do good, the desire, he says, to swallow us up in joy. The Lord himself, in the Old Testament, I might add, in Exodus 34, 6 to 7, when he defines himself, he says he's merciful, merciful, and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so, friends, some, the next time someone tells you that they prefer Jesus to the God of the Old Testament, two things. One, remember that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of God, representation of God, right? Hebrews 1. But secondly, if somebody says that, not only remind them of that, secondly, point them back to God's mercy to Ahab. How quick he gave it to them when Ahab certainly did not deserve it. But, as it does with so many others, the soil of Ahab's heart, apparently, or I should say the seed of God's mercy to him, landed on the soil of Ahab's heart. Apparently, it landed on the soil of the thorns. Because Ahab is so enthralled with the things of this world, and it choked out God's mercy. We see that in chapter 22. So far we've seen Ahab's injustice, his abuse of authority, killing Naboth. Third, final scene, chapter 22. Ahab's accumulation of selective sinful counselors. Guys, be careful who you surround yourself with. 
Be careful who you listen to. Because Ahab, in love with this present world, surrounded himself with people who told him exactly what he wanted to hear. We read in chapter 22, for three years, Syria and Israel don't fight against each other. But the king of Judah, remember there's two, there's the one kingdom of Israel has been broken up into two. Remember uh, Rehoboam and all that? All right, so you have ten tribes of Israel and then the southern tribes of Judah. Two of those, ten and two. All right, so each of them have a king because God's people broke up. All right, so you got Ahab. He's the king of the ten tribes of Israel. Uh, and we find that there's no fighting between Syria for three years. And then Jehoshaphat, my kids love that name, Jehoshaphat, right? He's the king of Judah. He's the king of Judah. He's the king of the southern, those two, that two, the nation of the two tribes. And so Jehoshaphat and uh, Ahab, they decide they're going to go hang out. They're going to chill out, right? They're going to go spend a little time together. Jehoshaphat's going to go on over there and talk and hang with his boy Ahab. There they are. It's a curious pairing, these two, because we learn later in chapter 22 that Jehoshaphat's a good king. Remember, his dad, Asa, was a good king. So Jehoshaphat is a good king, whereas Ahab is like the opposite. But nevertheless, there they are, the two kings, chilling out, relaxing, all cool in the neighborhood, just chilling out, right? When Ahab says one day in verse 3 of chapter 22, hey, you know that city, Ramoth-Gilead? You know, like, you know that's ours, right? Like, that's, that's our town. Syrians got That's ours. What do you say, Jehoshaphat, we go down there and take that thing back? And Jehoshaphat's like, cool, let's do it. I'm down. But, and here you see the heart of Jehoshaphat. Look at verse 5. But, Jehoshaphat says, inquire first for the word of the Lord. Friends, those that love the Lord don't make significant plans without first inquiring of the Lord. And they do that as evidence by the fact that they don't rely on their own understanding first. They are suspicious. The godly are suspicious of their own hearts. And they are trusting of God's heart. And so they go to their love. They go to their master. They go to their true king. And they consult the word and prayer and wise counsel first. That's what serious Christians do. But while Ahab has shown signs of humility... He doesn't hear. Take a look. Verse 6. Then the king, so he responded to uh, Jehoshaphat's desire to go out and get some hear from the Lord. Verse 6. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Well, there is one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. I can't imagine why, Ahab. (laughs) Well, these 400 prophets that are telling Ahab, Yeah, man, go for it. It's not explicit. But remember, remember back in chapter 18, he had 400 prophets of Asherah. And those dudes don't show up on Mount Carmel. It's only the 450 prophets of Baal. So maybe that's who these dudes are. But they're taking the name of the Lord, you'll notice. Thus, Jehoshaphat's response. Jehoshaphat's listened to all this like, yeah, go do it. Jehoshaphat's going, "Mm, I don't know. And he says, is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may require? See, the godly see through the ruse of counselors that repeat back all they want to hear. 
They want to hear. The godly want to hear from God. Even if it means bad news for them. Because they want what God wants. Because they trust God more than they trust themselves. Right there, when Ahab says this, we see the cracks of Ahab's heart. He just wants, Ahab just wants what he wants. I hate him because he never prophesies good concerning me. So what does he do? He keeps Micaiah away from him. And friends, so do the throngs of people do still today. People taking the name of Christ and yet keeping reasonable, godly counsel away because they know that counsel will call them to do something they don't want to do. Revealing their hearts back to them. Regardless, with Jehoshaphat's encouragement, they do. They go down and they call on Micaiah, our boy Micaiah. They go get him. They send a messenger. Ahab sends a messenger. And I love this moment. This is great. So they go back and they tell Micaiah, listen, come talk to the two kings, right, about this whole event. But the messenger says to Micaiah, listen, all the other prophets, they've been saying this is going to go great. So make sure Micaiah and say all that they said is going to happen. Say, say everything's going to go great, Micaiah. And Micaiah's like, dude, I don't play your reindeer games. No, I'm going to say what God says. Look at his response, Micaiah's response in verse 14, when the messenger tells him, like, listen, just, just, say, just say it's going to be great. His response in verse 14, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. Micaiah's like, I don't roll with that kind of stuff. My master is the Lord. It ain't you, bro. I'm going to do what God says. And in verse 15, Micaiah strolls up to the king and the other king, and he asks them if they should go up. Ahab asked Micaiah if they should go up and take my Ramoth Gilead. And interestingly, Micaiah says, yeah, go. It's going to be great. But I think we're meant to read sarcasm into that. You say, Nathan, how do you get there? Well, just look at Ahab's response. Ahab's wanting, right, to get good news, but he doesn't go with Micaiah's answer. How many times, he says, shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? There's something about Micaiah's response that Ahab is still suspicious of, which then opens the watershed where Micaiah prophesies, you guys go up and try to attack these dudes, you're going to lose. At which time, verse 18, Ahab looks over at Jehoshaphat. See, it says, I told you so. He's always talking bad. And what comes next, friends, has probably perplexed many of you that have read ahead. All right? Let me encourage you. There's cards in the front. Joe, is there still cards in the front over here? I think there is. Read ahead. Read in advance of the text, right? So if you read, take a look. Go ahead. Let's go ahead and read it. Verse 23. So what happens here is Micaiah then says back to Ahab exactly what was going on when the counselors were telling him all the wrong things. So Micaiah sees into the throne room of God and tells him how this happened, how these counselors came up with this bad counsel. Verse 23, here's the conclusion. This is the conclusion. I'm going to come back to the summarization, or I'm going to come back to the event. But the summarization of it, it says, verse 23, Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit into the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Obvious question. Those of you read ahead, even when you hear that, you're like, wait, what? God put a lying spirit, right? The question, the obvious question is, is God acting evil, right? Is God ordaining lying? And the answer, of course, is no. We know for certain that God is not a liar. 
It says in the book of Numbers that God is not a man that he should lie, right? In his commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness. God himself claims to be the truth. God is holy. Listen, here's a significant piece. He, he's not, uh, he, he has all power. He doesn't need to lie in order to accomplish his purposes. He speaks words and worlds come into existence. As we've seen, he can call ravens to feed his prophets. He can call down fire at the request of a simple prayer. Clearly, the Lord doesn't need a lie to accomplish something. The reason why you and I might lie is because we are somehow powerless and we lie to try to get something. God's not like that. He has all power. And clearly, God is holy, right? This is one of the basic things that you learn in systematic theology, to be holy. He doesn't even have a desire to do something that is evil. So what's going on here? Well, we learn about this spirit, this enticing spirit that comes. Notice, by the way, in your Bibles, that spirit is lowercase. This spirit that comes forward and stands before the Lord to entice Ahab is obviously some kind of being, some kind of person, right? And it's not, you might say again, it's, well, is that the Holy Spirit, Nathan? Well, no, because the Holy Spirit is holy. Right? So it's not the Holy Spirit, right? So this, this spirit is one, don't lose sight of this, you see it's very clearly, this spirit is one that initiates a desire to deceive. The spirit already wanted to deceive. The Lord didn't put it in his heart, it was already there, which matches exactly what we learn about the demons and Satan himself in John 8 when Jesus says, Right, that you are of your father, the devil, who lies because his nature is to lie. He's a deceiver. Therefore, that description of evil, of Satan, matches this spirit. He already wants to lie. He already wants to entice with lies. And so, as this spirit requests the opportunity to go and deceive Ahab's prophets, the Lord says, go ahead. In other words, this scene is reminiscent to what we learn about in the book of Job, right? When Satan comes up to Job, sings up to the Lord and asks him to go and tempt Job. So it is here. And so this spirit is likely a demon of some sort that the Lord uses for his own good purposes. Because remember, beloved, the Lord cannot do evil. He's holy. In him, 1 John 1, 5, in him is no darkness. But the Lord shows that he is king by being able to use the powers of darkness to accomplish his good purposes. Just as he did with Pilate, just as he did with the Sanhedrin, just as he did with Judas. To hand over his son. God is not the author of evil, but God can use evil to accomplish his purposes. The situation is sort of like the volume button on your radio. God doesn't turn the volume button on. In other words, go from no evil to evil. No, the volume is already on, and what the Lord does is he'll just take the the sound that's already on, he just turns it up to try and accomplish his purpose, to accomplish his purpose. That's what's happening here. The demonic spirit is permitted to lie to Ahab uh, through the already wicked prophets. Micaiah, the good prophet, then tells all this company, all these things that's happening, and at which time when Micaiah says that these are lying spirits put into the mouths of these lying prophets, one dude comes out and punches Micaiah in the face. Again, if you think the Bible's boring, you ain't reading it. This guy, he says, the guy that punches Micaiah says, how did the spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? Remember, guys, people that are deceived are deceived. They don't know that they're deceived. 
Regardless, Ahab then takes Micaiah, throws him in prison, and gives him meager rations. But unfazed, Micaiah says in verse 28, if you return in peace, speaking of the army, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear all you peoples. In other words, I love this, right? Micaiah is not concerned. He said, listen, if I'm wrong, then you'll do great. And then I'll be seen as wrong. But if you lose, it's going to be exactly what I told you was going to happen and not what those lying prophets said was going to happen. In other words, Micaiah was comfortable to go to prison for telling the truth because he knew that he would be vindicated. And the false prophets would be exposed as liars. Just as we would expect, we read about the battle in verses 29 to 40. Ahab, another being Ahab, attempts to disguise himself that he's not the king, while Jehoshaphat puts all his king, kingly regalia on. They go into battle. Regardless, the, words, Lord, the word of the Lord comes true because, remember, we're looking for Ahab to get judged. Some random arrow gets shot in the battle. They go up on Jehoshaphat, the Syrians do, thinking it's, it's Ahab, but it's not him. He says something, probably some call that they would have known was not Ahab. They go away. Some dude just fires an arrow, and boom, into Ahab. Down goes Ahab. The Lord can govern single arrows and battles. Verse 38, we read, The dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it. Don't lose sight of these next words. According to the word of the Lord that had been spoken. Micaiah was proven to be true. And thus ends the prodigious and the wicked life and rule of Ahab as it does all of God's enemies, according to the word of the Lord. Ahab was unjust, Ahab abused his authority, and Ahab surrounded himself with sinful counselors that told him just what his itching ears wanted to hear because he was unwilling to sustainably humble himself before the Lord. Why would he not humble himself before the Lord? This is where I want to move to the application and we'll be done. Why was he unwilling to not humble himself before the Lord? Chapter 21, verse 20, and chapter 21, verse 25. Because Ahab sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He sold himself to do evil. Like a prostitute, Ahab sold himself to do evil in God's sight. Don't lose sight of that. It wasn't evil in in Ahab's sight. It wasn't evil in those so-called prophets of the Lord. They thought that he was doing great. It wasn't evil to them. It probably wasn't evil to most people that was operating around Ahab. It definitely wasn't evil in the sight of his wife Jezebel. Ahab sold himself into believing that he could do whatever he wanted to do. He believed in the lie. He sold himself into believing there's no accountability to God. He sold himself into believing that he bought the lie that he was a law unto himself. He bought himself. He sold himself into thinking that he was above God's law. He sold himself into thinking that he was like God. So I ask you this morning. How many of you have sold yourself into believing, doing or approving of evil? In God's sight. Now many of you are doing the same thing. Because you believed 
that you in some way were a law unto yourself because you believed in some ways that you were above God's law. Again, either doing it or approving of evil. Believing, you've sold yourself into believing that you can be like God, that there is no accountability. How many of you have believed that you are your own? Friends, it's a spirit as old as the Garden of Eden that runs rampant in our own day. You see it in a lot of Disney films. You see it all over university halls. You see it in churches behind pulpits. I'm tempted to believe it myself. In fact, my guess is at some level I probably do. We're so steeped in this lie that we are our own. And if you're wondering what this might sound like today, I think it might sound something like this. Quoting the author of a popular book. Quote, True belonging is the spiritual practice of believing in and belonging to yourself so deeply that you can share your most authentic self with the world and find sacredness in both being a part of something and standing alone in the wilderness. That's a lie. In other words, to be completely free, you just look inside of yourself. Whatever you find there, you do that. Because, and here was the sin of Ahab, you belong to yourself. And notice the language of spirituality and goodness wrapped around that ugly lie. And one of the reasons it's so popular is because it's enticing, isn't it? Sounds good. Liberating. That's why it's so popular. Joy and freedom found in rejecting external authorities, be it government or God or the institutional church. To reject all those things that bind me. Reject all of those and become what I am within, my true self. Loose any of the chains that are seeking to bind me from without and be who I am from within and be whoever that is. Embrace the freedom of whoever you find yourself to be. Be a law unto yourself. Belong to yourself. Don't let anybody else tell you anything else. If you like some things that they like, we'll kind of take that, but reject anything you don't like. Sounds so enticing. But friends, I say what I'm about to say. As a father of two sons, of a pastor of a congregation that I love, and as a citizen of Ward 3 that has a lot of friends in this community that I love and care about, but this is a lying spirit that seeks to woo you into selling yourself to do that which is opposed to God. The basic lie that we are our own, that we belong to ourselves, that there is no long above our own desires, that we are in some ways like God, that we have no accountability, we can do what we want, we can sell ourselves into whatever it is we want to do. That is a lie that is literally spiritually and physically killing people by the millions. If we are our own, then we disciple our children to be Ahab. And if we do that, then we create a civilization of Ahabs that do not humble themselves to God or neighbor, but instead assert themselves over and against one another. That's the world we create. 
if we give into this lie that we are not our own or that we are our own. I mean, just think about the foolishness of this idea. If I am my own, then friends, I owe no one my obedience. I owe no one my submission to anything. Which, by the way, is the, why it was such a big deal that Ahab humbled himself. Because at that moment, he was finally doing what he wasn't doing. He actually humbled himself. But also, if I am my own and belong to myself, not only do I not have to submit to anyone or anything, including, by the way, traffic laws or my monthly rent, but also I'm then responsible for determining right and wrong on my own. I come up with that. No one else. No God, no church, no government, no law, no school, no friend, no family has a right to tell me anything of what is good, right, and true. I determine meaning. I determine purpose. If it's true that I am my own, that I belong to myself, and I don't belong to God. Human flourishing, if that's true, turns out to be, friends, one giant football game. With no teams, no boundary lines, and no real goal other than stepping on each other in order to get me into my end zone, whatever my end zone is. And it turns out to create a society of chaos. That's exactly, by the way, what we're seeing. If I, like Ahab, if I am my own, left with no transcendent meaning to fit my life into, to humble myself underneath, it's on me. And everything else is on me. And I don't know about you guys, but when I look inside of Nathan Knight, I'm a mess. I better not be doing all that's in here. Something has to explain while at the same time that we are experimenting with redefining reality by loosing any external objective moral restraints. Something has to explain why at the same time that is happening, when we're rejecting all moral transcendent claims from a God. At the same time, we're doing that. At the very same time, we're seeing skyrocketing uh, levels of anxiety, depression, loneliness, and meaninglessness. Why is that happening? Well, I can tell you one reason why. Because we're not our own. I'm pleading with us this morning to learn from Ahab. At least one of the reasons why this is, is because it is a lie to believe that we belong to ourselves. We don't. We don't. We were created in the image of God. A good God, a gracious God, a merciful God that speaks and tells us what's good, right, and true. We were made to belong to God and to each other. The Apostle Paul felt the need to explain this in the first century. Centuries later, after Ahab, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Or do you not know that you're, he's speaking to Christians, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you, Christian, were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Point is, you're God's. You're God's. Church family, friends, I ask you, was there ever a more free and liberated man than Jesus Christ who humbled himself before his Father? And because he did, remember what he said? Jesus said, it is my food to do my Father's will. 
And because it was his food to do his father's will, he humbled himself to the father. And as a result of that, he didn't need the Sanhedrin. He didn't need to sort of fit into the cultural narratives because, you know, that would be the way that it would make him happy. No, he did what God said was true because he trusted God. And he loved those that loved God and they loved him and he loved them. So much that he was willing to offer his life for their sins. So that they could be bought. It's amazing. Jesus humbled himself. The son of God humbled himself so much so that he goes to the cross. Pays for all the times that Nathanite and all the rest of you guys don't humble yourself. All the times we do think we belong to ourselves. And the times we do give over to doing what God says is evil. He pays for all of those. That's how much he humbled himself. And he assuages. He pays for all of that sin. And then he overcomes it in the resurrection, goes to heaven, sends the Spirit so that it would take up residence and jacked up folks like me. So that what? So that I could then humble myself and follow God. And know what life is. And reject all the things that's not life. Whatever that is. That's freedom. You don't free an airplane by taking its wings off. Right? You free an airplane by making it fly. God made us to fly. He gave us a law that was intended to make us live. We're not our own. We're not our own. Jesus didn't sell himself into believing that he belonged to himself. And so do evil inside. No, Jesus sold himself to do that which was good, right, and true. And because he did, he then showed that he belonged to God. He belonged to his people. Limits, beloved. Limits. Embracing limits is what led him to freedom. Not trying to get rid of them. The God-given, God-designed, God-ordained pathways that God engineered into existence to make human beings in his image to flourish. That's freedom. It is true, hear me, it is true that we are free to reject those universal limits, those universal laws. But like rejecting gravity, you're left to pay the price when you jump off of Mount Everest. You can do it, but you've got to pay the consequences. But if we do what Ahab did for five minutes... If we do it, if we give ourselves to it in a lifetime, humbling ourselves before God and one another, and then uh, be conformed not to what is evil, but is what is good in God's sight. Doing that which is good, right, and true. If we do that, sacrificing life and limb, sacrificing time and sleep, and click into the way and the truth and the life, then we'll find the joy that we were intended. It won't be easy here. You need to know that. But you are not your own. If you are in Christ, you were bought with a price. So don't sell yourself into doing that which is evil. Give yourself to do the one of whom you belong. Give yourself to Jesus. Embrace your limits and his limits for you. And walk that narrow, hard road that leads to everlasting life. And stop believing the lie that you can do everything because you can't. You know that, but you forget that. You're not God. We need each other. We need him. It's hard to follow Jesus, isn't it? But it's worth it. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. And friend, if you are not a Christian, you've not surrendered your life to Christ as Lord, and you have been doing evil and approving evil, the call for you is, is to be like Ahab when he did right and humble yourself. And hopefully what you saw, friend, is you can trust him that he's going to show you mercy when you show up. 
If you humble yourself and come to me and say, I've done what is evil, I've approved what is evil, show me mercy. You see, Ahab was way wickeder than you, I'm sure. He'll show you mercy. Plead, friend, your Christ. Plead Christ in his finished work on the cross and find mercy, find forgiveness. And then from that, go live a beautiful life alongside the rest of we deeply flawed yet gloriously saved sinners. We are not our own. In Christ, we were bought. He poured out his blood and he let his blood be licked like dogs so that we would be free to love him and belong to him. First question of the Heidelberg Catechism, written in 1563. It says, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own. But I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who bought me with his precious blood and is satisfied for all of my sin. I belong to him. So do you. So let's, and we belong to each other. So let's do that this year, right? Let's pray. God, we're sad and we're angry at all the Ahabs in the world. Small or great. And I trust we're sad at all the ways that we're like Ahab ourselves. Forgive us, God, for the times that we thought or still think that we are our own, that we are a law unto ourselves. And teach us to be like Christ who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Help us to see that in humbling ourselves before God and knowing and following him is the way of freedom and joy and peace and flourishing and not giving into this ridiculous lie that we are our own, that we belong to ourselves. God, we belong to you and we belong to one another. So may we live it out and be light to a world in need that's looking for meaning and purpose. May we be gracious and people that have found water go to those that are looking for it and tell them, I know where you can come to belong. You were made for Jesus. Go to him. Thank you that he came to us and showed us the way. And thank you that he accomplished it in the cross and that he empowers us not by our strength, but by his. Thank you. Amen.